So that Sakya Bhav of Raj is, is very special, very intimate. Here we have another kind of Sakya Bhav, like Draupadi, Arjun, in the Puri Sambandis. They're um, pals from the city, and they have a greater sense of the God of Krishna, which is, of course, manifest greater uh, outside of outside of Vrindavan. But it it's beautifully comes out here in these two verses, uh, introductory verses of the third chapter, because Arjun is a bhakta, he's a friend of Krishna, and he's saying, why you have to talk about Gan and karma, I'm a, I'm a devotee. There should be no secrets amongst us, we're pals. This is the hidden spirit of this. So why, why are you instructing me about knowledge, why are you instructing me about um, action, karma yoga, it was the topic here. Why don't you speak directly to him? He says, oh, Janardhan. Janardhan means, Vishwanath Chakvatitaka has come. In this sense, Janardhan means one who gives pain to his friends. So he's saying, hey, you know, hey, look, uh, hate to see how you treat your enemies. That's what you say to a friend, you know, when he gives you a hard time. So Krishna gives his devotees, uh, Arjuna's saying, you, uh, you give your devotees a hard time. He does. He causes them to feel the pangs of separation in his absence. This is their only real trouble, but it's a great trouble for them. So very intimately, on a note of intimacy, this chapter begins. We talked about this at, at some length. And um, while he says, that, look, Janardhan, he also says, okay, Shiva, which means, okay, he also acknowledges his godhood as I say, more so than in the brudge. Arjuna is, in one sense, the perfect example of disciple. Rupa Goswami's terminology is what? Vishram Bena Guru Seva. We should serve our Guru Vishram Bena. Vishramba means, again, confidence, with confidence, full faith. In the full sense of the term, it means, confidence means friendliness. Therefore, Shakya Vishram Bena Pradhan. Vishramba Pradhan. Kaviraj Goswami says, the root of Sakya is Mishramba, confidence, equality. Now, we don't think ourselves equal to our guru, but in the lower sense of, of that, the meaning of that word, full confidence, faith, and it means affection also. With confidence comes affection. So that's somewhere between friendship and servitude. Servitude that borders on friendship our best friend, our guru is our best friend, but he's our master also. So Arjuna is a perfect example of that, and here he is in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is the guru, Arjuna is the paradigmatic disciple. The teaching of Rupa Goswami is played, in that respect is played out in Bhagavad Gita. So in these two names, in the first verse, this also comes out. Janardhan, he says, ah, you, you, you're the guy that gives pain to your to your own pals, you know, and you're giving me pain talking to me about these things. I'm your devotee. Of course, as we've explained it, subtly and indirectly in speaking about uh, Nishkam Karma Yoga, Gyan Yoga throughout, Krishna is encouraging Bhakti. What he's doing in these first six chapters by speaking independently about these different types of uh, spiritual disciplines is speaking about Disciplines appropriate for different persons in terms of eligibility, but also in terms of those of us who have adhikar for bhakti and are beginning the path of bhakti, should look for in terms of development within our practice. We should look for all the development of religious life, all the development that can come from nishkam karma yoga, all the development that come from jnana yoga. We should look for the capacity to sit and meditate, dhyana yoga, not that we should be independently involved in all of those things, but whatever the fruits are of those things, they are included in the proper practice of bhakti. So Arjun is a bhakta, obviously he has adhikara for bhakti, but Krishna's put him in some type of delusion and saying, you only have adhikara for this, to do your duty. Here in this chapter he's going to say, now you have capacity to do nishkam karma yoga. So anyway, Arjuna says, look, uh, why are you giving me a hard t time like this, Janardhan? Then he also says, Tatkim karmani ghore mamni yo jayasi keshava. So keshava means, oh, who is the ishav ka of Brahma and Shiva? This is one translation. So he's also saying, but I cannot not do what, what you have 
ordered. And he also, in, in the second verse, he says that what um, this verse, what these instructions you're giving me, they seem to be equivocal. So he's saying that I know they're really not. They appear to be from my vantage point. So there's some respect there as well. So friendship and respectfulness together. And then, of course, now Krishna begins to reply. And, and as I mentioned, he this chapter is entitled Karma Yoga. And from verse maybe three up to what, um, up to eight, he speaks strongly about why Arjuna should be involved in Nishkam Karma Yoga. Nishkam from religious life to, as I said, there's a beginning of sacrifice there, just a beginning idea of sacrifice. That I don't do everything my senses and mind tell me to do whenever they tell me. I, I curb it to some extent. And what, what's the determining factor? to do it in a god, godly way. But when we come to yoga, we move from a religious life to now the beginning of experiential spiritual life. So there's a, there's a conscious sacrificing of the fruits of my, my work. And I'm doing it for a different purpose. I'm making as almost just a slightly conscious sacrifice in religious life to get material things. When I've come a little further now, I want to move into the, into the spiritual life. I actually know that there's, there's an intangible, there's a tangible but invisible thing that I want that's more valuable than all of material assets, even as, even as far as attaining the heavenly planets. There's some invisible thing that's more valuable. And it, it, you can get it by giving. And when your giving is given appropriately to the right place, that much more. And so I want that thing. It's a kind of a thing that, as I said before, once you get it, you can't hold it up and show it. See, I got this. I gave and I got this. But people will see it in you, a more full sense of, of self. There was a story I, I told the other day. Maybe some of you heard it, but... There was a, a man who had a son, and the son had some motor dysfunctions, and so he, he couldn't really uh, do a lot of things. And they were walking by the ballpark, and the other kids in the class were playing baseball with the opposing team, and the boy said to the father, Can I, can I play? Of course, the father knew he, he really couldn't play baseball. But the boy said, Please, please, ask him if I can play. So the father thought, well, they're not going to let him, but anyway, I'll, I'll ask them, and then they'll, you know, they'll say, you know, it's too late now, and I'll be able to give them a reason other than the real reason. And so he went and he asked the team captain, you know, my son, you know, you know my son, you know, he wants to play. Can he play? And to the father's surprise, the boy said, all right, let him play. Wow, he was just, uh, he was stunned and then the boy they put him out in right field where it's like you no know, last place that people hit is the right field so they put him out in right field and um and they were down by like uh six runs it was the fifth or sixth inning something like that sixth inning i think and so in that inning they got a they got a they got three runs and well, in the course of moving up to the ninth inning, they got three runs, and no ball got hit to the to the to the kids. Everything was fine. Here it comes the ninth inning. It's the last inning, the bottom of the ninth. They're down by three runs, and they get a rally. And they get and they load the bases, and there's two outs, and it's the right fielder's turn to bat. So then, and you know, well, the obvious thing was. They're not going to let him bat now. We're going to put a pinch hitter in. And so while their father's waiting for the pinch hitter, the uh, the team captain says, all right, go ahead and let the son go to bat. And so the pitcher, and the game's over. <laughs> so the pitcher, what he does is he comes up, gets off the mound, and underhands the ball like this. Yeah, they're playing baseball. It's a hard ball. Other hands the ball to the kid and swings and misses by a mile. One throws him again and misses by a mile. Everybody's like a really 
absorbed in the game at this point, or something <laughs> they're absorbed in. And he throws the next ball, and the kid hits it. And it just kind of dribbles out to the pitcher. And he's standing at the plate, watching the ball dribble out to the pitcher. And everybody says, run, Bobby, run. <laughs> Both teams and the whole crowd is running, is yelling, run, Bobby, run. So Bobby starts to run. The pitcher's got the ball in his hand. He takes it, and he throws it out to right field instead of the first base. The right fielder gets it. Bobby's on first base. One run has come in, and the first baseman says, run, run, the second base. The right fielder takes it and throws it to the, to the center fielder. The center fielder takes it and throws it. Left. He's rounding the second base, and the second baseman says, run, run, run. This way the team chases him around, and the, the, the opposing team, and uh, by the time the ball comes back in, he's crossed the plate, and it was a, what do they call it, a grand slam. And the question is, who won? You see, the game itself was entirely transcended, and this all happened spontaneously. It wasn't calculated at all. It happened spontaneously. But the one kid decided, well, let him bat, or let him play. And then another kid, let him bat. The pitcher decided, let him get on first base. Right, feel it. Everybody just suddenly got a sense that, uh, and it came spontaneously, that giving was was about getting. The losing team, you know, who won? Everybody won. The team that lost probably felt that they won even more than the team that officially won. The father told the story of the church, and he said he had, thought he had an understanding of why God made his. Uh, some kids like this, to give people a chance to experience something that's of the nature of of the spiritual giving. Now, of course, granted, it was just a baseball game, and Krishna wasn't directly involved. They didn't have the right, they, they couldn't, the full sense of giving wasn't accomplished because it wasn't directed towards the object that has the capacity to receive full giving. But the point is, that whenever we give, we gain something mystically. It's not logical that by giving we will get. That is, that is contradictory. But the mystical fact of life is that we do. So life is not to be understood simply by logic and reasoning. It, it, it transcends the limits of reasoning. And this is a very simple point, one that we observe even in, in ordinary life, that by giving you get. Now, what to speak, if you give, kind of, if you will, scientifically, you give entirely of yourself in the right place. This is what Brajapakti is about. This is what the Gopi Leela is about. What happens? What does it mean? It means Krishna. It means, it means that the that consciousness has a consciousness. What is the consciousness of consciousness? This is what Jiva Goswami wanted to find out. You see, Shankar, he realized, and it's no small thing, that consciousness is real. To the point that he said, there's nothing else that's real. Consciousness is the only real thing. He said, why? He said, because consciousness cannot be denied. Whatever can be denied, is not real. Consciousness cannot be denied. Why? Because the act of denial requires consciousness. This is very profound. On the spiritual uh, landscape, he, he made a mark. He moved the marker here. Really, from the religious landscape, which is this world, the outer landscape, slightly in connection with the inner landscape, just remotely, just so that it becomes tinged and colored. He actually moved the equation onto the inner landscape and said, made a marker and said, this is real. Consciousness is real. Nothing else is real. This was his contribution. When we have a critique of Shankar, 
But we appreciate this point. Jiva Goswami has appreciated it. Yes, consciousness is real. Ramanuja came along and what did he say? He said, all right, consciousness is real. But mere subjective reality, that has no meaning. For consciousness to be real, there has to be something to be conscious of. It has to be an object. So he said, what consciousness reveals, the external world, the objective world, that's also real. And when consciousness looks within itself, it reveals a knower too, somebody to be conscious. So he may put on the spiritual landscape, the inner landscape, the world too is real. We're talking about reality here. The world's real. The individual soul is real. This is by almost contradicting, really, Shankar. These are great thinkers, more great experiencers, what they arrived at. And Jiva Goswami coming in the wake of, of such thinkers, fully acquainted, fully acquainted with their experience as well as they could articulate it. Fully acquainted with that. He wasn't quite satisfied with their explanations. He felt that to say that consciousness is real is, is profound, but why is it real? Just because you can't deny it, it doesn't say, it must be something in it. Some It must have some positive content. It gives more justification for saying that it's real. And similarly, with regard to Ramanuja, well, just to say that there must be a world, because consciousness must have an object, must be a, an, an individual, because there must be a thinker about it. This isn't to say much about those two things either. Other aspects of the unity of reality. It's not saying much about them. So what a mind he had, how inquisitive he was into this topic. And so he searched out. What he, he was looking for what is the consciousness of consciousness? What makes consciousness Brahman tick? He thought there must be something, and if we can find out that, that will greater explain why consciousness is real, why the world is real, why the jiva soul is real and how they're all part of a unity and so forth. And so he looked to Svetashvatarupanishad, Parasya Shakti Vibhidai Vashuyite, this verse spoke to him. He said, oh, this is it. And his whole theory hangs on this one word, Shakti. Brahman has Shakti. Itcha Shakti. He has a will to enjoy, a will to do, a will to know. These are all components of ourself in a sense as well. We have a will to, to enjoy, a will to do, a will will to think. When the absolute, when Brahman, when the sense of willing rises up, willing to do the world, willing to know the jiva, it means bahiranga shakti, tatasta shakti manifest. Will to enjoy takes precedence. Antaranga shakti, Sarup Shakti. In this way, by analyzing the conclusions of the previous acharyas and looking for a deeper reason to support what they actually realized, what's of value there. This is the Gaudiya Vaishnava. We just go and take the best thing, the essence. If someone wants to jump back in our face about it, then we have to say, okay, well, there's problems here and there. But otherwise, we don't criticize. We take the best thing. Shankar, we, we revere. He's given this. Ramanuja, he's given this. But if we say, Jiva Goswami given this, you please recognize. What is the contribution of Jiva Goswami? He found out, that it means to say, that the consciousness of consciousness is love. Sri Krishna Chaitanya. Keshav Bharati gave him the name. Sri Krishna Chaitanya, that is your name. It means what? Krishna Consciousness. Consciousness of Krishna. Chaitanya means consciousness. Consciousness of Krishna. Krishna is the supreme consciousness. <laughs> That's what he is. The, the consciousness of Krishna. It means that love prevails. Love is superior. Love conquers all. Krishna is subordinate to love. This is the whole message of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Jiva Goswami sought it out. He said, oh, this it has a purpose consciousness, its purpose is joy. That means love. Ananda. Its purpose is joy. Because it's, it exists for the purpose of joy, because its purpose is joy, it must exist. 
and it must be cognitive. As I said before, you could have an existence that's not cognitive or joyful, but if you were to have a, a reality that's joyful, it must also exist, and it must also be cognitive. Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavan, Iti Sabhite, Vadanti Tattapavidas, Tattam Yad Gyanaman Vayam. It's Gyanad Vayam. It's non-dual, but it has, it appears as Brahman, Paramatma. Bhagavan, Paramatma is overseeing the doing, the will to do, the world. Brahman, the knowing, the jiva souls, those atoms of this, in a sense. They're conscious, in other words. And Bhagavan, Bhagavan is existing for joy, but because he's existing for joy, he has to exist, and he has to, there has to be some cog. So when, when these, see, this is, a, this is a unity, will to know, will to do, will to enjoy, within our own being also. Sometimes one takes precedence, some takes another. When the will to know, the jivas are manifesting. The will to do, along the world. The world follows the will to know. You see, if you have desire, Bhagavan, out of joy, becomes many. It is all of us. Then it, it, because the jiva desires to see, the world provides an eye. That world, maya, goes on kind of automatic. It's a habit. It's like a habit. Like if you do things for a, a long time, it becomes habitual. When it becomes habitual, what does that mean? That it's almost unconscious. Do you understand? The world is moving, not independently of Bhagwan, but unautomatic. We become identified with that, we're unautomatic. What does the Gita say? You think that you're doing, but only the modes are active. Only the modes are active. Only the gunas are active. Not you. You're not the doer. We become identified with that. We, we cease to that extent from being a thinker, from being a knower, and potentially an experiencer. So at any rate, this is the um, uh, something, a brief an analysis of Jiva Goswami. He wanted to find out the consciousness of consciousness. He found out that what makes consciousness tick is shakti. The Surup Shakti. Actually, Tatastha Shakti, Pahiranga Shakti. These are, in one sense, manifestations of the Surup Shakti. It's the, it's the Swayam Shakti. They're not fully, in, in a sense, independent. If Radha is there, so many Shaktis. Ananda is the essence of the Surup Shakti. She is the personification of that. So we have Radha there, we know it's uh, different queens and Sita and uh, all the way down, Parvati, Sachi. Mother of Indra, wife of Indra, these are all. So, whether it be Tatastha Shakti or Bahiranga Shakti, Maya Shakti, it's not entirely removed. Before we say there's Chitkan, Ananda Khan also in the Jiva. Some capacity for Ananda in the Jiva, but it cannot be activated without contact with the greater reservoir of Ananda. This is the idea of the Guru. Then it becomes activated. This is the teaching of Bhakti we know. There's some particle of Ananda in the Jeev. Some capacity to love. So Jeeva Goswami, he searched this out. So here in Gita, we find Krishna begins to instruct Arjuna about yoga, about consciously giving, from almost unconsciously giving, in as much as your giving is for getting material things. Okay, I'll be religious and I can lead a better material life and so forth. That's almost like unconscious giving almost unwilling giving, begrudgingly. I'm giving because in that, that equation of giving is the sense that I'll get, and that's the motivating force. But as we move from there, from religious life to yoga, to spiritual spiritual life, then there's the conscious giving in the sense that, by, that giving has value in and of itself, intrinsically, giving has value. So here, Arjun, Krishna is emphasizing this, Nishkam Karma Yoga, overtly. Covertly is stressing bhakti, as we've been discussing throughout, but Nishkam Karma Yoga. You do uh, your duty without being attached to the results. You give the results to God. And what happens? Again, a tangible but uh, invisible sense of getting is arrived at. You can't hold it up and say, see, I got something. But like those people in that ballpark, everybody knew. They didn't, nobody can talk about it. 
What can you say about that experience? Who won? Everybody won. What did they win? You cannot explain it. You try and, and you, you can't. You can't say what it was. You cannot articulate it. But it was, it was wonderful. And everybody says, it was wonderful. It, you should have seen it. it was, this is what happened. And you tell what happened and everybody gets, the, gets even a sense of it right there. Gets a, a sense of, oh, wow. Wow, that was nice. That was something. What was it? Now, how can we talk about Krishna consciousness? What it is? How can we talk about it? We cannot even explain that invisible attainment that comes from giving in the wrong place or, or, or an un, un, uneducated giving, partial giving. Even if it's giving fully, if it's not given in the center, then it, you cannot give fully of yourself. There's some gain, and you can't even talk about it. You can explain, again, the dynamics of how it happened, and everybody experienced it. That's about all you can say, really. Well, to speak of Krishna consciousness, which is the full, full, full giving, full, from religious giving with calculation to a greater sense of, of giving in karma yoga, you get knowledge. As you get mystic knowledge, then the giving is less of material assets because now it's giving of the self directly. We're giving indirectly of the self by giving of the things that we're attached to. We're attached to doing certain things, so the fruits of what we get, at least we, we give that. We lose the connection with that attachment, and there's a greater capacity to give up the self. In knowledge, mystic knowledge comes. Mystic knowledge comes from giving, Krishna's teaching. And with that mystic knowledge, one can do mystical things. One can sit down. That's mystical. How can he sit there? It's mystical for most people. How can he just sit there? I mean, how can he just sit there? There's so many. You're pressed to think there are so many things to do. They say, don't just sit there, do something. And we say, don't just do something, sit there. Try it. <laughs> Try it. And if you can't just sit there, then those things that you're doing are not the right things. Do those things that will enable you to sit there. Because when you sit quietly in a quiet place, then you can know more. That's why we, we, we want a quiet place, we sit down, we want to really think something out. We have to become less busy to reach a deeper understanding, more far-reaching conclusion about anything. Mystic knowing, you can sit down, it's wonderful. Is that not tangible? You can sit down, sit down, it's okay. You don't have to do anything. That's tangible. You must have got something if you don't have to do anything. You know that saying, I owe, I owe. So off to work I go. There's a bumper sticker like that. <laughs> this is wonderful. You can just sit there. And so then, from Gyan Yoga to Karma Sanyas Yoga, Krishna goes in fifth chapter, and Dhyana Yoga. Now, to develop that, some techniques and, and so forth. And what does he come out on the other end? Bhakti is the best yoga. But all this development should develop within the context of practicing Bhakti Yoga for those who are our beginners, we should look for that. So Krishna, anyway, here, this chapter emphasizes Nishkam Karma Yoga. And he says, look, the two things I've explained previously in this world as a twofold basis for devotion, that of knowledge for contemplatives and action for yogis. He's not saying two things. It's a question of adhikar, eligibility. Yes, I told you about, I gave you Sankhya, I gave you wisdom, and told you the virtues of that, and then I told you fight. Right. And you're confused about that. But what you don't understand is the way in which I'm telling you to fight, Utishta Utishta Bharata, armed with yoga, I told you fight without consideration of gain or loss, happiness, distress, with equanimity of mind. This is yoga. And then I told you, right after that, I'm going to teach you about yoga now. So I'm qualifying what I'm telling you to do when I tell you to fight. I'm, putting, I'm really telling you to fight your attachments. I'm telling you to, to engage in yoga beyond just dharma, that your dharma to fight. I'm engaging you in, in, in another kind of dharma. He says, in this dharma, neha bhakramanashosti bhaktivayana viddite svarupamapiyasya dharma sitrayate bhatobaya. This is a special kind of dharma. 
in ordinary dharma, well, what you get can also be taken away as far as material gain that may come. But in this, there's no loss ever, especially kind of dharma. So, what I'm telling you is that, that that knowledge, you will get it by action. Also, so in, from the context of Gohi Vaishnavism, we're also being taught here that we talk about high ideal, as I said earlier, but we also talk about how to, how to get there, practically. This is as, as important. So, we cannot just uh, go and sit down in Vrindavan and become uh, Babaji at, at Radhakund immediately pass through some stages of purification. So we can apply this directly in the context of bhakti as well, this, this kind of emphasis throughout the first six chapters. So it says here at any rate, I told you about knowledge, but I, now I'm telling you actually how to get there. One who has an adhikar for that, who's already engaged in acts, he says, don't, not by abstaining from action can one attain the state beyond action, nor by renunciation alone can one attain perfection. So Krishna says by abstain, that, that abstaining from prescribed duties, which are the cause of purification, is not going to result in your purification. And renunciation, sannyas, without prior purification, this will be fruitless. This is artificial. And he speaks a little, he speaks a little strongly. He says, indeed, he's emphasizing action. Because this is required to, to, to arrive at that knowledge. <sighs> well, that, he says, no, no one, even for the twinkling of an eye, remains free from action. All people are forced to act even against their will under the influence of the gunas born of material nature. It's implied here, too, that even the monk has some, some need to act and right to act. The monastic for begging, maintaining his body, and, and so forth. Now, strongly, Krishna says what? I'm just kind of hurrying along here, so I'm just reading the English because we've talked for some time. He says, A person who sits restraining his working senses while contemplating the sense objects deludes himself and is called mityacharas uchate. The hypocrite. So in very strong language, Krishna is emphasizing this point to Arjuna. Again, we can take it in the context of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Don't be a hypocrite. It's not a cheap thing. You, Pakistan Sarsitak used to say, don't try to be a great devotee, be a good devotee. That's a hard thing, to be a good devotee. Do you want to be a great devotee? No, then some imitation will, will probably come. He used to say that deserve first, then desire. So try to be a good devotee. Honest person, not a hypocrite. However, he says, one who begins to control his senses by the mind, or Arjuna, without attachment, engages his working senses and engages his working senses in karma yoga. He's superior, superior to one who sits down artificially. So don't be like that, he says. Perform your prescribed duty for, by, for doing so is better than inaction. One cannot even maintain one's body without action. So this section ends here. Arjuna, will, Arjuna has some question after this. He doesn't verbalize it, but he has some doubts that he's even qualified for that, what's being discussed here. And in the next section, which we'll go over next meeting, Krishna will regress back. See how he's emphasizing this point. He's emphasizing Nishkam Karma Yoga, which is beyond leading a religious life. And then he'll regress back to emphasize religious life again for several verses how it's based, uh, how the world... This is his emphasis, you see. This is the beginning of the teaching, of spiritual teaching of the Gita in practice. In theory, in the second chapter, and somewhat the yoga was taught there also in brief, but here now he's beginning to focus on it, the actual teaching of yoga. And what does he center on? What is the main point that he's focused on here? Sacrifice. And what is Sacrifice. Sacrifices is but the, pr the primal stage of love. You see? And sacrifice requires knowledge. It's a conscious act. Oh, I'm going to make a sacrifice. So first we, we are selfish, then we move to, to self-sacrifice, consciously sacrificing, making a sacrifice. As the sacrifice increases in intensity and degree, then it takes precedence and knowledge just starts to be retired.
It moves to self-forgetfulness. There's no consciousness that I'm making a sacrifice. And this is where we end up at the heart of consciousness, the consciousness of consciousness. That's when we arrive at Bhagawan Sri Krishna, at Krishna, the, our friend, our intimate uh, knowledge is retired. There's no sense of sacrificing there. But the sacrifice is, is extreme. It's reached the pitch of love and self-forgetfulness. So my point simply to you is this. Here is the beginning, in one sense, of the teaching of yoga in the Gita. And what is Krishna emphasizing? More than a, any particular practice, the very heart of the whole thing, what the whole thing ultimately culminates in. Again, conscious, the consciousness of consciousness is love. Love of God is our ideal. Krishna prem, not Krishna. The jiva is drawn and Krishna is drawn. And the point of unification is love. Krishna said, I quoted it earlier, As they approach me, I reciprocate accordingly. In Braj Bhakti, especially in the life of the gopis, what's, what's happened? He could not live up to that. He could not live up to that statement. So he's conquered by that. He said, I'm purchased by you. Do what you want with me. Radharani is the guru of Krishna. It's clearly mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Sandipani Muni was a Shaivite. Shaivite, how could he be the guru of Krishna? Well, no Vaishnava would volunteer. <laughs> so he got, he volunteered. But that's all external. How could he be the... No. Radha's the guru of Krishna. He admits it through the pen of Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami. Oh, the whole world worships me. I am Purna Brahma, the full Brahma. But, uh, but uh, Radha Prem Unmad. The prema of Radha makes me mad. Radha makes me mad. I'm. She is my guru. She's. Uh, I'm moving. Krishna Lila. Krishna is dancing, and she is my teacher. So the meeting point between the jiva and the and Krishna is love. So love is is superior. It's what makes consciousness tick. It makes the whole thing what it is, really. The whole thing. What we're in. What we are. What. It, what it is. <laughs> this is a different way of thinking about ourselves that we should consider very deeply. And so in the Gita, my point is uh, that in the beginning instruction about yoga, he's emphasizing the whole, the central thing. You see, it's not different kinds of yoga. It's a development of the same thing, the, the result, the ideal. It's going into consciousness. It's going from the world preoccupation with matter to tempering that preoccupation in consideration of God and the world comes from God, belongs to God, to consciousness of which I am of that type, of that nature and what it's about. It's about love at its center. Nice. <laughs> nice idea. Hmm? So don't see like, and then they're arguing. Jnana Yoga. No. Karma Yoga. No, Kriya Yoga, and they make up so many different types of yoga beneath that, inside that, and they're <clears> fighting with one another. So, you have not read Bhagavad Gita. And they're arguing, they're fighting on the basis of Bhagavad Gita. I gave some some reply. Somebody asked me, where is the chincha in, in Bedabhed? Yeah. Well, he said, where is the chintya? The lotus is blue. This is the example of Ramanuja. There's the substance and the attribute. The blueness of the lotus is the attribute of the substance. So there's difference and there's unity and Ramanuja's perfectly explained them. He calls it inseparability, apritaksidhi. This is his term. So he's brought this under logical category. So what's the need for a chintya? So I gave a brief reply, and then this fellow passed it to his friend, and he came back with the whole, ah, go to your lunch, them is as bad as it. What do you know about anything? You go to your people. And, and Ramanuja has given everything. He's answered everything. And all you can say is a chintya. What kind of logic is this? You say it is, there is, it is illogical, and that's your logic. And he didn't understand, doesn't understand the doctrine of, of uh, a chintya beta beta very well. First thing I, I'm making reply, I said, first thing, your reply 
is uh, bordering on insulting and very um, uh, disrespectful to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So it, it, this is not indication of much understanding of Vedanta. We have a, a substantial way of evaluating one standing in Vedanta, not just how many words you know and logic and scriptural support, but how much it changes your life. In my reply, I had nothing bad to say about Ramanuja, only that we differ, <laughs> and this is why we differ. In fact, what we see is that his term inseparability, by which he tries to bring difference and oneness under a logical category, it falls a little short. Our analysis is that the, that the Shakti of Brahman and Brahman are interpenetrable. We are God, and we are not God. The two things in one escapes logic. Therefore, how it happens, how it's possible that difference and unity can be in one is achintya, by the achintya shakti, by the inconceivable power of God, it's possible. And all, I'm telling you, all the different acharyas have tried, have, have acknowledged that there's identity and difference to one extent or another, and they've tried to logically explain it. This is the difference, in one sense, between Mahaprabhu's whole sampradaya and every other Vaishnava sampradaya. And I didn't say it at that point, at, the, at first, but I'll say it in, in my reply to this gentleman politely. Who cares anyway? Who cares anyway for all these commentaries? You ask what's a Gaudiya commentary? And you want to critique Baladev's commentary? Who cares? We don't even need Baladev's commentary. It was a provisional commentary. Anyway, he got it in the dream and wrote it in seven days. If you find any fault in that, who cares? What's the need for your commentary? We've got Srimadagatam. Atoyamama Sutranam. Who's pointed it out? Jiva Goswami. What? Bhagavatam? This man says, who cares for your illogic? You want to just say Achintya? Ramana just explained it logically. You say yours is improved by saying it's illogical. What is that logic? Of course, again, he doesn't understand what we're, what we're actually saying, but when we say, when we speak of Achintya Shakti. Then he says, Ramanuja, he has explained it. He has explained what Vyasa has said in the Sutra. I said, well, that's not a very good argument. You just want to tell me that, you know, he's right, and he's right because he's right, and <laughs> because Vyasa said it. But what do we say? What's another reply we can give? Who cares? What do you think? Why do we care for that? We are respectful for Ramanuja. Great person. Even Shankar, who you hate. We, we respect him. Madhva, Balaba. If these people knew what we say about them, they'd be tickled pink what position we give them. You study it, nobody says more wonderful things about Ramanuja, about Madhva and Shankar than the Gaudias. Even while we differ from them. Study it and see. Jiva Goswami has drawn from all of them, all their work. He's not someone that just burns the bridges. Like talking about giving no taught in his Bhagavad speech, no. These are great, like great uh, marks, as I said, on the, the, the interior uh, mountain. And recognizing them, looking from there, hmm, looks good from there. Let's go up a little further, see what it looks like from here. But in another sense, you want to say, "Oh, Ramanuja has told us what Vyasa said. It's very clear." We say, "Who cares for that then? You want to talk? Who cares for that?" What Vyasa said about the sutras, it's there in Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam is the commentary. Vyasa wrote it. He's the author. Vyasa wrote his own commentary in the sutras. That's our commentary. You want to ask where the Gaudiya commentary is? Yours is dwarfed in comparison. It has no standing. Why did you even write it? You ask why we don't have one. We say, why you wrote one? For what purpose? Vyasa has already written it. Srimad Bhagavatam. His own commentary, his own explanation. Now, who has shown the importance of Srimad Bhagavatam like no one else? That is Gaudiya Sampradaya. Who has embraced it more than anyone else? No one, I'm telling you, no one has any commentary on Srimad Bhagavatam that has any value practically in comparison to the Gaudiya commentary. And go and find out for yourself. Go to Vrindavan. 
where Bhagavatam is regularly recited. It doesn't matter which sampradaya is relating the Bhagavatam, they'll be relating the commentaries, Sanatam Goswami, Vishwana Chakvati Thakur, whether it be the Bhagavatam or Balabas, or they'll all be commenting on that. Gaudiya Sampradaya has embraced Srimad Bhagavatam like no other sect. This is their central focus. And, as the scripture has said, it is, a, it is Vyasa's own commentary on Srimad Bhagavatam, and no one has shown how to understand Bhagavatam in a more sensible, logical way than Gaudiya Sampradaya. What do we say? What did Yudhu Goswami say? Well, gee, what does the Bhagavatam mean? Okay, Bhagavatam is a, is a explanation of Vedanta, of Vedanta Sutra, Brahma Sutras? Well, how do we understand what it means? Well, let's see, right here in the seventh chapter of the first canto, Vyasadeva, he's telling what he experienced in his trance of meditation on Krishna Leela that gave rise to his writing this book. Maybe we should go there to find out what it's about. Maybe the author of the book himself, hmm, here he's telling what it's about. Narada told him, meditate on Krishna Leela. That's what you should do. He says, I did that, and you know what I experienced? This. Six, seven verses he gave. What did he experience? He experienced Bhagavan. He also experienced the world. At distance, Maya Shakti. He also experienced the Jeep Shakti. The organic whole of these. The means to, to free the jivas from the burden of their preoccupation with the world. And Sukadev, what is stated there? All these verses are explaining Vyasa's own words. What is the meaning of Sukadev? No one has even thought to do that. Not even thought. So many commentary on Bhagavatam. The author himself is saying, this is what it's about. I experienced this in my trance. And so Jiva Goswami says, well, that must be what it's about. So his whole commentary is analyzing the Bhagavatam from that point of view. Anything that seems to say anything different from what is described in those verses has to be adjusted according to those verses because the author has said, this is what I experienced that gave rise to Bhagavatam. And there we find Achintabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedabedab
This is Vrindavan. Trinata Pisu Nichayanat Parara Pisu Nichayanat. We are humble. We pay our pranam to the Vaikuntha people, to Madhva, to Ramanuja. But if somebody who thinks, who imagines, they are representing Madhva, that they are representing Ramanuja, or any other sect, by criticizing Gaudi Vaishnavism, then they really, really have no standing anywhere. Then we will speak back strongly. Then we can say, oh, you represent, you say this, and you are representative of Ramanuja? We don't care for Ramanuja. Not that Ramanuja. You have imaginary Ramanuja that you are following, that makes you so proud. Who cares for him? Who cares for his commentary? Let me say, we have our own commentary. This is, <laughs> this is our point. So, any questions? I don't know if we launched down to that, but there was some connecting point there somewhere. You should be all proud, humble as anything, and proud of one thing. I'm included in Bodhi Vaishnava. Somebody of consequence has spoken for me, and on that basis I'm, I'm included in, in, in the Bodhi Vaishnava world in some way. Some, you know, however small, doesn't matter. I'm with them. <laughs> Something like that. There was one uh, when on the Pariyatra the first time they did it around India and we went through Udupi. The you know they rotate the acharya there, and the, that acharya when he greeted the Pariyatra, he they had big pandal that and he glorified Prabhupada said actually he, he has done more than Madhva Acharya. Madhva he brought. Krishna from Dwarka to Udupi, but Prabhupada has brought Krishna from Vrindavan all around the world. Hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of a true, uh, true follower of Prabhupada. Right. So maybe we should, we should stop and take a little prasad and then discuss all these things at our leisure. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Yogi Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Sri Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupada ki jai. Sri Bhakti Rakta Chiradi Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai. Gaur Bhakti Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi.